Well, I welcome in those of you who are joining us live now uh, on the web, who are tuning in through the internet, or who maybe are coming back and watching this archived later in the week. It's good to have you be a part of worship with us today. I apologize for the uh, sound of my voice, and it probably won't get better as the service goes along, but that's... uh, (coughs) I've got a summer cold, or it doesn't seem like you could call it a cold in July, so I guess I've got a summer hot, but I've got a summer something going on that's, uh, I feel like my head's in a drum and I'm so full of sinus medication, I may not know what I'm preaching by the time that I'm done here, but uh, we're diving back into the book of Philippians. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me as we continue in this series entitled, How to Find Lasting Happiness, and what we're going to talk about today applies for every one of us. Uh, We're looking at my favorite passage in Philippians And we're going to be talking about how to keep from stressing out in life. Anybody in the room ever struggle with stress and getting stressed out? Man, it's such a universal thing. I read very recently where, and I don't know how they measure this, but the people who who do research and measure this say that stress levels, not just nationwide, but globally, are approaching record levels today. that, That they are the highest that they have been since World War II, and they are almost as high today as they were during World War II, which is hard to imagine. Uh, It's just people are stressed out about so many different things. read recently where uh, suicide has now replaced automobile accidents as the number one cause of injury deaths, that there are more people being killed taking their own lives than than by even automobile accidents. And I saw a list uh, recently of what are considered the seven biggest stressors in everyday life for Americans. And they are in order, uh, number one, job, two, money, three, health, relationships, poor diet, media overload, and lack of sleep. Now, when you hear that list, you may think, well, that's not the order that I would have put it in. But one observation that I would make about that is, those seven things, which do become for us a pretty good glimpse of over the span of your life, the things that tend to stress us out, different seasons will bring, bring other things to the top of the list, like lack of sleep was number seven. But if you've got a three-month-old, uh, lack of sleep is probably number one for you right now, right? You know, I mean, there's different things happen. You're without a job or the economy's stressed. Different ones will move to the top. The bottom line is this. There are all kinds of things going on in life right now that have the opportunity and that will tend to just stress you out. And doesn't that just take all the fun out of life? When you're worried, you're anxious, you're stressed out about your health, about your kids, about your marriage, about your job, about how you're going to pay the bills, just on and on it goes. And and you just stay tied up in knots. You don't feel well. You don't sleep well. It's just not a fun life. I've got great news for you. God never intended for you to live stressed out. God doesn't want you to live another day of your life worried. He doesn't want you to have a moment from this point forward that you live anxious and tied in knots. And today we're going to look at at His plan. A very clear teaching about how to live a truly stress-free life. And I can bear testimony to the fact that this works. This is a very practical plan for how to have less stress, and much more joy and peace in life. And so we're going to look together beginning in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says this, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all that He's done. And then you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. 
and keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. It's a great passage, isn't it? And in this, Paul lays out four very clear, specific things that if you want to live a stress-free life, you've got to build these in. And they come with, with a guarantee. It's the stress-free guarantee, but it's not from your doctor. It is, it is from the Lord himself. It's summed up in, in verse 7. The Living Bible uh, says this. If you do this, repeat that with me. If you do this, if you do this, you will experience God's peace, which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. His peace will keep your thoughts and your hearts quiet and at rest as you trust in Christ. You know... When you think about stress and anxiety and then what Paul is talking about here, the peace and, and rest, the settled heart that God wants you to have, they're like the two ends of a teeter-totter, aren't they? It's like a seesaw. You know, when one is up, the other is down. When, when you've got stress and anxiety to the max, then your peace and joy, they are on rock bottom, aren't they? And when your stress level and anxiety level can go down, it's amazing how that's just instantly, automatically replaced with the, the peace and the joy that God desires for you to have. And Paul is laying out a game plan for you to have so much less stress and anxiety and just so much peace and joy and rest in Him. But the key phrase that I want you to see here in the beginning is what you just said with me, if you do this. There are more than 7,000 promises in the Bible, God making promises to you and me. And almost every one of them is connected in some shape or form to a phrase like this. The promises of God typically come with premises. They come with conditions. If you do this, here's what you'll receive. But now the cool thing about the promises of God is that they're a little bit like getting a suntan. You know, think about how hard you have to work to get a suntan. You, you don't have to work to get it, do you? I mean, do you ever see anybody out there in the sun going, Ooh, sunbeams come into me. You don't do that. You don't have to work to get a suntan. You just have to get out there in it and reposition yourself so that you're exposed to it. And God has created a world where you're going to get a suntan if you'll just make a little adjustment and just get out there and get exposed to what God is providing most of the promises of God work like that. You don't work to achieve them. You don't earn the things that God promises. But you do have to make adjustments. You have to reposition yourself. There are some if-thens in that. If you'll do this, if you'll reposition your life, if you'll step outdoors and get into the sunlight of what God is providing, there's going to be a change that will happen in your life. And it's kind of like getting that suntan. It's this progressive thing that looks so good and feels so good when you do it. But you're going to have to reposition your life. And so we're going to talk today about the four things that you've got to do. The four little adjustments. You can't make yourself have peace. You can't make yourself be stress-free. But you can reposition some things. You can do some things differently. And over time, it is amazing how that load will be lifted off of you. 
and how it will be replaced with peace and joy. So, that's what we're going to look at today. The four things that Paul says that we have to do, very practical, very straightforward, and, and it starts with something that, that he just says so directly, and that is you've got to refuse to worry about anything. God does not want you to worry. You weren't made for stress. He says, don't worry about anything. Now, how much wiggle room do you hear in that statement? I mean, do you, do you hear him saying, you really shouldn't worry about most things, but I mean, now, granted, you know, with your kids, you ought to worry. You, you probably have a reason to worry. When you can, or with your, your spouse, you know, I'd, I'd be worried too. I'd, I'd be anxious. It, I'd be uptight if I was married to who you're married to. Nope, he didn't give us any of that. doesn't say, but, you know, if you're an air traffic controller, then you can worry. You, he doesn't give us any room for exceptions. You're not supposed to live with worry. God didn't design you to have to carry that around with you. And Jesus said worry is a big deal. In fact, in Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, if not the largest, one of the largest sections in that entire sermon, he devoted to this one idea of getting free from worry. Because this just so saps us, and it really works against our faith in such a big way. Jesus teaches, as we're about to see in this passage, that worry is unnatural, it's unhelpful, it's unnecessary, and it's, oh, by the way, it's unhealthy. It's destructive to your body. Here's what Jesus said about it. That's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food to drink or enough clothes to wear. Now, let me say this about this. He says, you know, enough food to eat, enough to drink and, and clothes to wear as like the big concerns of the day. Bear in mind that he's speaking in a day where the people are living in poverty and their, their biggest concerns are what are we going to eat, what are we going to drink, what are we going to wear, are we going to have a place to live. They literally are worried about meal to meal. Now, I get it. You, you and I, we didn't get up this morning and try and figure out how are we going to have clean water today. Uh, am I going to have any clothes to wear? That's not our concern. If Jesus were addressing us 2,000 years later, he would have been using as his illustrations the kinds of things that I just named in the top seven stressors of the day. Jobs and money and relationships. He was just speaking to what was relevant at the time. So I get it. You're not worried about what you're going to eat and drink and wear, but the same thing applies to your job, your school, your marriage. He says, Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to Him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, What will we eat or what will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of... Who? Of unbelievers. But your Heavenly Father already knows all of your needs. Worry is a... It really has a negative effect in a, in a lot of different ways. And one of the things is, worry makes our problems seem even bigger than they are, doesn't it? You know, when, when you think about a, a little thing that could happen or something that's gone wrong or somebody who said something about you behind your back and the more you think about it and you chew on it and you worry about the effect that's going to have, it'll make small things big and big things bigger. Worry just has that, that power that it magnifies the negative. And Jesus is just showing us how 
completely counterproductive it is. And the first thing he tells us is how unnatural it is. I mean, you ever stop to think about this? Of all the things that God created, humans are the only ordering creation that worry. And Jesus is showing us this. He's like, the birds, they got a lot they could worry about. They don't. They don't worry. They, they don't plant, and they don't harvest, and they don't have silos full of food. They, they just live their lives. And he said, you know, the, the flowers, all the things that God's made, they don't worry. They just enjoy God's provision. And he's saying, do you see how backwards this is? Mankind is the crowning work of creation. The only thing made in the image of God. We are what it's all about in God's creation. And we're the only ones who are worried about God's provision. You see how upside down, how backwards that is? He says, God is the one who makes sure that the flowers and the birds and everything else in creation is provided for. And of course, we're the ones over here going, yeah, but those birds are just too dumb to realize they ought to be worried. They may freeze to death. They may starve to death. They're just too dumb to, to know. They ought to no, Jesus is saying, actually, the birds have got it right. The birds are the ones who've got more sense than you've got because they just rest in God's provision. And he's saying, if God takes care of flowers that are going to be scorched and gone tomorrow, birds that have a short lifespan, how much more would he take care of you? It's not natural that you should worry, and it's, it's not helpful. He said, you know, who by worrying makes his life any longer? We could add to that or any better. You ever had a situation that just was worrying you to death and then when it finally all played out and worked out, you went, man, I sure am glad that I spent the last six weeks worrying about that. I'm not sure I could have gotten through it if I had not lost all that sleep and worked. He's like, what, what does that accomplish? And he says, it's just so unnecessary because God knows what you need and he's committed to meeting your needs. Proverbs 12, 25 says this, an anxious heart weighs a man down. How many of you know that's a fact? That it just physically wears on you. Your body wasn't made to deal with the stress. It's unhealthy. The, the old English word for worry that we get the modern word worry from meant literally to, uh, to strangle or to choke. It, it has that effect. And it just feels like it's just got a stranglehold on your entire life. Here's the other thing you can know about worry. You weren't born doing it. You had to learn to stress out about stuff. I mean, stop and think about it. Most of us in the room, we've raised little ones. How much do three and four-year-olds worry about how the light bill is going to be paid for that month? Or where food's going to come from for the next week? Or any of those kinds of things. They don't worry about any of that stuff, do they? Why? Because at that age and stage of life, they've got typically a mom and a dad who take care of those things and they realize they don't have to worry about that. And it's funny, we grow up to be adults and we discover that we have a heavenly father who's actually the one who's going to make sure that we have all of those things. And what's our response to that? I'm not sure I can trust him with that. I'm not sure he's actually going to take care of those things. And we learn to worry. And so what we've got to do is unlearn that. We've got to learn how to do what Paul is talking about. And that is to quit fretting and worrying. So how do you do that? Because, I, listen, I get it right now. The, the ones of you who are paying attention and who are practical are going, Preacher, thanks for nothing. Thanks for no help. If I knew how to not worry, I'd already be doing it. I don't need you standing up there railing, telling me not to worry. I already know I've got a problem with worry. Can you identify with that? 
So how do you begin to do that? Paul's going to give us some real practical instructions here about this. But I'll tell you this on the front end. Part of how you stop worrying is through conscious choice. You have to stop rehearsing the potential negative outcomes. You have to stop rehearsing the worst case scenario. I have heard multiple people over the years who explain to me their own version of why they choose to worry. You may have heard people talk like this too, who will say this essentially, I, I envision what could happen and I picture kind of the worst outcome so I'm ready for it. And that way, if it happens, it doesn't really foul me up. It doesn't really bring me down because I've already been expecting the worst. And if something better than the worst happens, then it's a nice surprise. So I go ahead and I imagine the worst things that could happen. It's like, what? Can you follow that? Everybody with me on that? There's probably more people in the room who do that than want to admit to it. Some of you listening online are going, yep, I do that exact thing. I think about a situation and I imagine like the worst possible outcome so that, you know, I'm not caught off guard by it. Let me just tell you, if that's the way your mind works, you've got to stop. You've got to change, and you can. If that's the way your mind works, you have bought into a lie from the devil himself, from his demonic host, because what they have done is they have trained your mind how to work in a way that sucks your faith dry. Because you say, you see, what faith feeds off of much of the time is the ability to envision what God wants to do and what God is about to do. Faith is built on your mind and your heart having the ability to envision the good that God is about to accomplish, the will of God being done. And so the opposite of that is your mind running in the other direction to imagine the worst that could happen. And as you begin to envision that, it doesn't build faith, it drains faith out of you. And it is a conscious choice on your part whether or not you allow yourself to sit there and play this out. What's the worst thing that could happen? Hey, the moment your mind asks that question, stop it. Stop right there and say, no, I have a different question. I can choose. My mind has been renewed. I have the Spirit of God, His power living in me. I choose to ask a different question. And here's the question I substitute in place of what's the worst that could happen. Instead, I ask, what does God want to have happen? And do you think that the answer to that is ever going to be the worst that could happen? Those are going to be two very different outcomes, aren't they, most of the time? Make yourself ask instead, I'm not going to rehearse what's the worst that could happen. If I've got to rehearse something, I'm going to rehearse what does God want to have happen. And then that leads to the second thing that you do. And that is hand it over to the one who can deal with it. When you feel yourself starting to worry, when you feel yourself starting to get stressed out, your mind, you didn't even mean to, you're, you're all the way into it before you even realized where you were going, your stomach's getting tied up in knots, you feel your shoulders tightening up, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm there right now, I didn't even mean to, but I woke up, I'm in the middle of the night, and I'm just in the middle of fretting through the night about it, I just wake, you ever do that? You ever just wake up worried, it's like, Oh my goodness, I, I'm not, even when I was asleep, I wasn't resting because my mind is just going 90 miles an hour worrying about this thing. And you're just in the middle of that. When that happens, stop right there. I make a conscious choice to do what the Word of God says in 1 Peter 5, 7. Give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares about you. How do you do that? You, you just... Put on the brakes. Put your foot down right now. I, I stop what I'm thinking. 
And this thing that I'm so tangled up, I've got to figure it out. I've, I've got to think it through right in the middle of that and just go, wait a minute. The word of God tells me to do something different. It says to, to cast my cares. That, that, that word there, forgive, in other translations is cast your cares. It means literally to drop your load. To drop it on Christ because he cares for you. So whenever you're in the middle of trying to fret and worry and figure it out, stop and say, mm-mm, this only takes me to a bad place. What I need to do is take it out of my hands and go, God, I can't fix that. I'm trying to figure it out. And instead of trying to figure it out, I'm just going to talk to you about it. I'm just going to give it to you right now. So he, here's the big question of the moment. What are you worried about? This isn't a sucker question. I'm not fixing to come back and tell you you're unspiritual for worrying about it. This is real life for most people in the room, most people watching online. Something weighs on your mind. Something gets you stressed. Something gets you anxious. What are you most worried about in life? Is it about health, job, money? For many, maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's a relationship. What are you most worried about right now? He says, first of all, choose not to worry about it. Okay, how, how do we do that? That brings us to the next half of the verse, the second piece, and that is talk to God about everything. Don't panic about it. Pray about it. And instead of talking to yourself about it by just rehearsing it again and again, talk to God about it. He says, instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Wouldn't you agree that if we prayed about the things that worry us, if we prayed about it half as much as we worry about it, we wouldn't worry a whole lot, would we? And Paul's just giving such a practical instruction. Every time that you feel your mind and your gut getting engaged and you're starting to fret and worry, he just says, instead of doing that, instead of letting yourself just roll that over in your mind, just... Talk to God about it. And we're not talking about, oh, I've got to do the ACTS, you know, the whole thing in prayer. No. Just say, Jesus, this is so on my mind. I, you know, I just, it seems like I can't stop thinking about my child. I can't stop thinking about this financial predicament, this decision that I've got to make. I, Lord, it's just so on my mind. Can I just talk to you about that? And, and do. Just talk to him like you would to your best friend. Tell him what you're thinking. Tell him what concerns you. Ask him to talk to you. Ask him to to not only give you his peace, but to give you direction. Just talk with him about what's going on. And it's amazing the effect that that's going to have. Now, our job isn't to figure out how God's going to answer or what he's going to do. Our job is simply to ask. Did you ever pause to consider that when we fail to do this, when we fail to turn to God about the things that we worry about and ask Him to meet the need and trust Him to do that, that what we do instead when we just choose to to just fret and worry about it, that that is practical atheism. It's what Jesus alluded to in the passage in Matthew that I read a while ago. He said, this is what the unbelievers do. The people who don't believe that there is a God who's in control of everything and who has children on earth who belong to him that he's committed to caring for. When those kids choose to worry about all this stuff, see, you're just behaving like an unbeliever. Because faith says, I have a heavenly father. 
He's worried more about, not worried about, but he's concerned more about my needs than I am. He's committed to meeting my needs. And so practical atheism says, I know God promised to supply all of my needs, but I'm not sure he's going to do that. I'm not sure that something hadn't gone wrong or he isn't paying attention or maybe I haven't been good enough. And so I'm worried. Worry is just a practical way of living like an atheist. I don't really believe that stuff. James reminds us in James 4 too, he says, you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. So right there, you've got it. The second key to living the stress-free life is instead of worrying more, ask more, pray more. And don't fall into the trap of feeling like, oh, I just feel like I just all I'm ever doing is asking God for stuff. I don't want to I don't want to ask for too much. You realize, don't you, that if the population of the planet was multiplied tenfold or a hundredfold and every human being asked God to supply every need in their lives, God wouldn't be stretched by that. That wouldn't tax the resources or the heart of God. God isn't ever stressed out going, I cannot believe you are coming back asking me for something else in prayer. It is God's great joy. It is the heart of God that he is a giver and it is his great joy to supply our needs. And if you ever question how committed God is to doing that, I want you to remember Romans 8.32, which says this, God did not spare his own son. He gave him up for all of us. Then won't he also freely give us everything else? Here's what I want you to remember in that. Every time you or I are, are tempted to question or doubt whether or not God's going to supply what's needed, Jesus is the proof. Jesus is the proof that God would go to any length to supply whatever you need. Paul's just making the case for that. He said, if, if, if your point of greatest need, which was your sinfulness... It separated you from God. You were headed toward a hellish eternity. You were going to live your life on earth separated from God. You were going to live exposed to all of the snares and the attacks and evil of the enemy cut off from God. But God wasn't willing to leave you in such a precarious position. And so God said, the one way to remedy this is I'm going to have to send my own son. He's going to have to bear in his body all of the stuff that you need to avoid, all of the hellish experience and the pain and suffering. I'm going to have my own son take your place in experiencing all of that so that your greatest need can be met. You can be forgiven. You can enjoy the protection of God. You can enjoy a relationship with God. And he's just saying, if God would be willing to have his own son suffer and die to meet your need, what could you possibly come up with as a need in the future that God wouldn't be willing to just lavish on you everything that you need? If he would give Jesus for you, do you think for a minute that he wouldn't provide a home for you? When you're searching and just think, I've got to find a place to live and I can't. Do you think that he wouldn't speak to you and show you what school you need to go to? Do you think that he wouldn't provide that person for you to supply that deep aching in your heart for companionship, for a mate? Do you think that he wouldn't be attentive to whatever you're feeling, whatever you're needing, whatever your financial need is? If he's willing to give Jesus. So don't worry about anything. 
Talk to God about everything. Thirdly, think about good things. This is the part that would have eluded us if Paul hadn't said it. Wouldn't you agree that the, the battle with stress is completely right here? It's between your ears, isn't it? All of the battleground with stress, it, it all happens in your noggin. It's all what goes on in your mind. So if you want to live stress-free, it really boils down to this. You have to learn to think differently, right? But it helps to understand something about how your mind works. A lot of people uh, treat their mind kind of like it's a highway. Anything that wants to pass through, it can. Just just roll right on through. And so we just sort of expose our minds to whatever. Now, some of you sort of faded out and got the hangover from the 4th of July. Tune back in with me on this because this is significant. Your mind is not a highway. We live in a world that is so corrupt and so filthy that we begin to think, well, you know, we're just going to hear all this junk. We're going to hear all this dirty talk. We're going to hear all this, these horrible lyrics. We're going we're to see all these images. We're going to be around all this stuff. We're going to hear all this foul language. And it's just, you know, my mind's just kind of a super highway, and it's just... Whew, it just breezes through and goes, just sort of whatever. It doesn't hurt me to be around all the, the garbage. It doesn't bring me down. Yes, it does. It absolutely impacts you. Your mind is not a highway. Your mind is much more like a computer. And you know how it works with a computer. What you put in it is what you're going to get out of it. You remember the old G-I-G-O thing? Garbage in, garbage out. You put good data in a computer, you're going to get good data out. You put faulty data in a computer, it's never going to give you good data back out. It's going to only be able to give you back what you put into it. And Paul is teaching us this principle. And it is very much linked to stress and anxiety versus peace and joy. He's saying you need to understand that part of what is bringing you down is what you're allowing yourself to be exposed to. And I mean, we can do this in so many different ways where we... we lose our peace and joy and replace that with anxiety and just all kinds of junk that the net result is we wind up at a bad place. I mean, some of it can come in what seems like the most harmless of ways. You, you want me to give you a silly example? I, I know of quite a number of wonderful people who love Jesus and they're just people that I'm so glad to count as friends and they will spend every spare waking moment that they have tuned in to Fox News to find the next thing to worry about and be upset about. They're adding to their list of 199 reasons to pray for Barack Obama to no longer be president of the United States. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And listen, I'm, I'm not standing up here making an appeal for Barack Obama being a great president or anything. I, but you know what I'm talking about? It's just the mindset of we're going to come apart at the seams because Obama is our president and the world is just going down the drain and Fox News is the one last beacon of hope that we have and we're just going to sit here and find out more reasons that we should be distressed about what's going on in Washington. Look, I like Fox News as well as anybody, but if that's what you spend all of your waking time doing, is, and, and you do realize, I mean, I don't care whether you're watching CNN or ABC or Fox or whoever, they're, they're still feeding this thing in us. That's why if it leads, it bleeds. We're going to give you all the bad news. We're going to give you all the shock value stuff. We're going to, we're going to do our best to shock you and make you feel like you've got to stay tuned in because America may not make it to another week. I mean, seriously, isn't that the tone 
of, of what happens on the news. And people will just dial in like, oh, I've just got to I've just got to hear the next bit of junk that's going on because I'm just not sure we're going. I mean, the people who are most distressed are the ones who watch the news the most. And don't get me wrong. I think Christians ought to be dialed into what's going on in the world. I really think that we should. But it is a trap to just constantly feed our minds with bad news, which is really slanted in a negative way most of the time. Same kind of thing's true for the person who you're not locked into Fox News all the time. You're locked into the gossip news all the time. And you hang out with people who are always biting and devouring others. Always being negative about us. And that negative talk, man, it has such an effect on how we think and how we feel. I'll tell you another place that it really does impact us. And that is at the level of just media in general. When you think about music, movies, and television in particular. these Those three. Now, consider what Paul says on this subject. He says, brothers and sisters, think about things that are good and worthy of praise. Think about the things that are true and honorable and right and pure and beautiful and respected. He gives us an eight-point checklist of the things that our minds need to be turned toward as much as we can. And it's a wonderful checklist, isn't it? Look at the words that he gives there. These adjectives. How much does that list sound like the TV shows that we love to watch? Or the movies that are playing at the theater right now? Or maybe even more significantly, the music that's on your iPod right now? The music that you've got downloaded? The music that's playing on your favorite radio station? True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, excellent, worthy of praise. Do the lyrics. Does the dialogue, does the storyline in any way reflect these kind of qualities in the things that, that you run to, that you repeatedly expose yourself to? Listen, I, I'm, I don't live in some remote tower where I'm not exposed to the world. I, I am much as you are. There's a certain amount of junk that we're going to be exposed to. And it's a challenge to not let that bring us down. But it's a trap to choose to just dump more and more and more garbage into us, into our minds. And let me say this. Of all the things that I just mentioned, there is one that has far greater staying power than all the rest. Don't miss this. It is the music that you listen to. God wired, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. He wired the human heart and mind to be dialed into music. It's why anything you want to remember, set it to music, and you'll remember it ten times longer than anything else. Things that are set to music stick in your mind longer than anything else. And the music you listen to, you listen to raunchy music, it will have a longer lasting effect on you than the other things that you expose, expose yourself to that are raunchy. Now, you may hear all this and go, okay, you've given your little talk on, you know, don't go to bad movies, don't listen to bad music. What, but really, how much effect does that have? It has a tremendous effect in a bunch of different ways. Well, what does that have to do with peace versus anxiety? It, it really is this simple. Your peace 
Your ability to just be at rest is completely connected to your ability to stay centered on Christ and to stay near Him. It's what the Scripture is talking about in Isaiah 26, 3, when it says, You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, whose thoughts are fixed on you. And it really isn't a complex thing. There are times in your life when your heart is so dialed into the Lord, you're so in tune with the Holy Spirit, this, the presence of Christ is very real with you in the form of the, of the Spirit of Christ, and you, your heart is just so open to Him and what He's saying and doing. And there are other moments where that isn't the case at all, right? And you think about it. When you are just, you know, in the middle of a raunchy movie or a really morally rotten television show, that you, something you know you don't have any business watching, when you're listening to that song, it's got an awesome beat and it is singing filth. You tell me, you tell me that you are ever in that place and you feel the nearness of Christ. Tell me you're ever in that moment and your heart is just one with the Spirit of God. That you're just going, man, I can just feel Jesus right here with me in the car. Tell me that ever happens. It doesn't, does it? It's like those two things do not coexist. We know when we let our hearts and minds run to those places... We can make all the excuses we want to for we love the beat or but there was a good storyline to go with this really filthy movie. When you get past the excuses, the bottom line is while I'm in this filth, my heart just feels so far from Christ. And guess what happens when my heart moves far from Christ? Joy and peace evaporate. And when that's gone, guess what happens with just a little bit of passing of time? I start feeling the weight of now having to carry my burdens myself. I know I'm not walking in the anointing, in the covering, and just with the presence of Christ powerfully with me. And so now I feel the weight of my relationships. I feel the weight of my job. I feel the weight of having to carry it all and do it all. And now I've got to start this process over and going, waiting until I get to the point where I'm like, oh, this is about to kill me. Where did this go wrong? Somewhere back up the line, I quit staying centered on Christ and letting my thoughts return to Him and enjoying just living the day, living in the presence of Christ. Many of you who are my generation or older will remember Corey Ten Boom. How many of you know who I'm talking about when I say that name? The Hiding Place, the book and movie. If you don't remember her, she was uh, she and her family, her siblings and her parents lived in Amsterdam during World War II after the German Blitzkrieg had swept through Europe and they were living under Nazi occupation. And uh, she and her family just felt so burdened for the Jewish people in their city who were being targeted. And of course, you know, millions of, of Jewish people across Europe were taken and sent away to the death camps, these concentration camps where they were were. Uh, gassed to death or cooked to death in the ovens and just by the millions were exterminated uh, in an attempt to completely wipe them out. And so she and her family were so burdened about that that they, at tremendous risk to themselves, they created a hiding place in their home and they began to take in Jewish people who were being tar targeted by the Nazis and they hid them out at great peril to themselves. And eventually they were found out that they were saving these people. And so she and her family were carried away by the Germans, and they were put in a concentration camp. And over the course of, of the last part of the war, she experienced all of the starvation and abuse, and she watched uh, 
as both of her parents and all of her siblings were murdered by the Nazis in the concentration camp. Corrie ten Boom was the only member of her family to survive. And having endured all of that, here's how she sort of sums up her take on life. She said, if you look at the world, you will be distressed. And if you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at rest. Now, on the surface of it, those three little lines sound like somebody at Hallmark wrote them for a greeting card. But let me say, when you've been through what she has been through, uh, you've earned the stripes. You've earned the right to tell us what will distress you and what will depress you and what will bring you great rest. When a woman who has endured what she has endured says, hey, here's what I found, we need to listen. She truly knows what it means to say, you look at the world and you'll be distressed. How many of you know what it's like to be distressed looking at the world around you? How many of you look inside and it's like, oh, I'm depressed about what I see? She said, you know what, if you'll stay centered on Christ, your heart can be at rest. The fourth and final thing that Paul tells us, and this is my favorite part of the passage, and that is the final piece in just living with peace and joy getting rid of stress and anxiety, is be content with anything. Don't worry about anything. Talk to God about everything. Think about good things and be content with anything. Now, most people misunderstand contentment because we think it has something to do with complacency or lack of ambition. And trust me, it is none of the above. Paul was as ambitious a man as you find in all the Scriptures. I mean, when you really get to know the heart of Paul by reading the Scriptures carefully, you realize... Man, this guy wanted to take the world, and he took a large part of what was the civilized world in his day. I mean, it's incredible how ambitious he was. He was a driven man, but he was a man at peace. So contentment, it's not laziness or apathy or ambition or even fatalism. It just says, well, whatever will be, will be. It's not that at all. Contentment is simply this. It is choosing to enjoy what I have and who I have now instead of waiting for my situation to get better and waiting to have somebody better in my life. Waiting for better friends, waiting for a better girlfriend or boyfriend or spouse. It's choosing to be happy about the people and the circumstances that I do have instead of wishing for better than what I have. In verses 10 and 11, Paul says this, I've learned... Say it with me. I've learned, I've learned by now to be quite content whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much, with much as with little. I've found the recipe for being happy whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty. How many know that contentment is unnatural? Any of you just born, just, just content all the time? Just all, I've never known anybody like that. We're not born that way. That's why no child ever has to be taught the word, you know, mine or to have temper tantrums. I mean, did you have to teach your kids to do that? No, we're born discontent. We have to learn how to be content. So I didn't put this in your notes, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up by giving you three very specific things that you can do if you want to learn contentment in life. This is a big part of the deal. The first one is this. You've got to choose to stop comparing your situation to others. You're always going to lose in that. When you compare yourself to other people, 
You know, if you come out better in that comparison, it gives you pride. And if you come out worse in that comparison, it leaves you with jealousy. When you're always looking at, you know, somebody else has got a better boyfriend. Somebody else has got a better looking wife. Somebody else has got a, you know, a nicer house or a cooler car. It, none of those things are going to leave you at a better place. Proverbs 14.30 says, A peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. Jealousy is like cancer in the bones. Do you realize how much the stuff that we're talking about today affects your health? They say that 70, research has shown that 70% of the people in the hospital are there either for direct or indirect causes of stress. Stress-related illness has most of the people who are in the hospital has them there. All this stress and worry and jealousy, it eats us up from the inside. We're worried about what, how what we're eating is going to kill us and how what we're eating is what determines our health. You know what? What eats you is a lot of what determines your health. What's eating you up? What's worrying you? So stop comparing yourself to others. Second piece is this. Stop thinking that having more is better. Sometimes having more is less. Paul got that. He said, I know what it's like to have plenty. I know what it's like to be in want. And neither one of them is going to drive my happiness or lack thereof. Advertising is like the main thing that has constantly brainwashed us that you would be happier if. You'd be happier if you had our product. You would be happier if you had more. You would be happier with a different house. You would certainly be happier with a shinier car, with a newer car, with a car with the bells and whistles. You'd be happier with this jewelry. You'd be happier with this brand of clothing. You'd be happier with more. And it's a lie. It's a lie. More stuff will not make you more happy. Amen? I'm going to say it again. More stuff will not make you more happy. Do you believe that? Do you really? It's a fact. My life is living evidence of that fact. Three years ago, I lived in a brand new two-story, five-bedroom, three-bath house that we built. It was grand. Had wonderful finishes, large, comfortable. Had it, it sat on one of the nicest lots in a very nice neighborhood overlooking the water. Beautiful home. I pastored a church that the three of the last four years I pastored it, it was nationally recognized as one of the hundred fastest growing churches in the country. It was a wonderful church to pastor. On any given Sunday, we had literally ten times the number of people in attendance that we have at Freedom. We had at least 10 times the membership that we have here. We were on three different campuses. Go and blow in ministry. My income was several tens of thousands of dollars per year more than what I make now. All the things that you could measure from an earthly standpoint, you would say, oh man, life was so much better then than it is now. I want to tell you with all the honesty and integrity I have to offer, my life is so much better now than it was at that point in time. I make a lot less money. I serve a much, a much smaller church. I live in a much smaller house. And it's not that smaller is better. I have just lived in the reality that my happiness, my peace, my joy has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with the size of the house that I live in. The amount of money that I make, 
the kind of car that I drive, the number of members in my church, none of that stuff has anything to do with how happy I am, how much peace I have. And the same, ultimately, is true for all of us. If that statement isn't true for you, something's really out of whack. Because we've connected our happiness to things that really don't matter. More stuff does not equal more happiness. Sometimes more is less. How many of you remember a passage from a few months ago in Ecclesiastes 4, 6 that says this, Better to have one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. That sounds so good in church and it is so challenging to live in, in the world, isn't it? Because it's like, I could have the two handfuls. I could afford this. I could do that. I, I think I could stretch and have this too. It's going to be stretched a little thin. I have to work some extra hours. I have to have to, have, you know. Better. So much better is one handful with tranquility. And then the third thing about learning contentment is learn to admire without having to acquire. Such a wonderful, simple principle in life. There are so many things that you can enjoy without having to own them. Hey, do you love going out on a boat or being on a wave runner? You don't have to own a boat or a wave runner to enjoy that. You can rent them or better still find a friend who's got one and use theirs. Let them insure it. Let them have to store it. Do you love the beach? Hey, there's nobody in the room who's a bigger fan of the beach than I am. I love the beach. I used to think for years, man, my dream would be to one day own a home on the beach or on the water or whatever. That has changed completely. I got to hope now that I never own a place on the beach. They're so stinking expensive and it's ridiculous to try and insure them. And I've just come to realize it's so much easier to just do, you know, one of two things. For one, a lot of my off days, I do exactly what I did yesterday. I drive 45 minutes to the beach and for free, for the cost of a, you know, a few dollars of gas, the beach is mine to enjoy or go rent a place at the beach for a week. It's so much cheaper than owning one. All kinds of things that you can enjoy without having to own it to do it. This whole thing of needing to acquire, to just enjoy what's already yours. So all of that said, how did Paul pull this off and how do we do this? He sums it up in verse 13 when he says this, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me the strength. I, I close with this. Uh, I don't know how many of you know who Kay Warren is, but she's Rick Warren's wife. Rick Warren is the pastor of Saddleback Church. And Rick is probably one of the most solid Christian leaders I know in America today. And, and it stood the test of time. If you don't know this, Rick and Kay, uh, they've gone through the hardest year of their lives this past year. Their son committed suicide about a year ago. And if that wasn't bad enough, they've just gotten had all kinds of crazy people that have you know accused them of what terrible parents they've been leading to a suicide. It was just a really rotten year. Kay has written a book uh, entitled Finding Joy. And on the cover of the book is a picture of a set of railroad tracks. And it is an analogy for what she says in the book about finding joy. And, it, and it's really profound. And just to sort of summarize, part of what she says in the book is that most people picture their life as being like a road. 
And they think in terms of, you know, along the, the highway of life, you've all heard this, you know, there are going to be high points, there are going to be smooth parts of the road, and mountaintop experiences, and there are going to be valleys. The road will go through, you know, dark places and bumpy seasons, and you just hope that you have more of the highs than you do of the lows. And what she says is, that analogy is not adequate for life. It really does not truly explain what life does, that a better picture of life is a set of railroad tracks. Railroad always has two rails. And the reason that this is a far better analogy, and the point that she makes is this, life is not full of just, well, some days are just great, and they're nothing but the mountaintop, and other days are nothing but the dark valley. And she says, no. Instead, a better picture of life is that there are always two rails. And those two rails represent the good, happy, pleasant, positive experiences of life. And the other rail is the stuff that's difficult, that's painful, that's challenging, that you don't really want to be there, that you wouldn't have chosen to be there. And she says, every day of your life, both rails are present. Now, when you go to Disney, you get to ride the monorail. <laughs> and the, the bad rail can be gone. It's sort of a picture of heaven. You're going to get to heaven one day and it's going to be a monorail. You get to lose all the negative, stressful, bad stuff in life. But guess what? You don't get to live your life on this earth at Disney. This isn't heaven yet. And in every day of your life, you're going to have both rails of that train track in place. There's going to be good stuff. There are going to be wonderful things, blessings that you don't deserve. And there are going to be challenging things, things that can stress you, things that are, that are burdensome for you if you try and carry them. There will never be a day on this earth that you don't have both halves of that track in place. And here's the bottom line. Here's what it's all about. The people who live happy, the people who live stress-free are the ones who can stay focused on this rail and who let Jesus completely carry the burden of this rail. Every time they start to feel the load of this rail, which is present for every moment of their lives, they just go, God, I'm not capable of carrying both. So I'll just lay that on you. That is your deal. And the people who stay stressed out and worried and who are eaten up inside. Listen, I used to be the biggest worry wart in the planet. I mean, I, all kinds of stuff that it would do to my body. My fingers would, would crack and blister as a result of stress. The IBS that I carry around, my stomach would stay tied up in knots. Just pain in my shoulders and stuff. Stress wearing on my body, it, it'll do it to all of us. Stress will make you break down physically. I have experienced the freedom that Paul is talking about, of getting to a place of not worrying about those things, talking to God about this, learning to be content, letting Him carry the other rail. You are living a life where both of those rails are in place today. There are good things happening in your life. There are encouraging things. There's stuff in the future to be encouraged about. But right now, there are other things that could weigh on your mind. They could eat you up. They could rob you of all your joy. And you can't wait for the day that those are gone because you're going to be dead by the time that happens. If you're going to have joy in this life, you're going to have to just realize through every day, valleys and mountaintops, both rails are there. Jesus is able to carry the heavy rail so that you can enjoy all the pleasures of the other. Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer right now? I want to ask you to just do something really simple. I want you to just sort of sort of bend over and let your let your forearms rest on your thighs. Would you just get in a, 
in a position like that. And I want you to turn your palms upward, both of your hands. I want you to just, just like you had a softball in each hand right now. With your eyes closed and your heart just dialed in. I want you to just picture, it's not softballs in your hands, it's heavy weights. It's like you've got two, two heavy shot puts right there in your palms. The things that weigh you down. And I want you to label what those one or two things are that you're carrying. The biggest stresses, the biggest sources of anxiety. Maybe it's your job, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's relationship. Maybe you worry over your kids. Man, that can be a heavy one. I want you to picture the heaviest burden that you carry that weighs on you and worries you. Now I want you in your heart to talk to God about that. Paul said, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Tell God what you need. We are simply acting out. We are living out what, what Peter said when he said, you can... Cast all of your cares and anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And right now, I just want you to just, I want you to name what that is. God, I am so concerned about my child. I am so concerned about this situation. You tell Him. Tell Him what's weighing on your mind. And as you begin to talk to God about that, I want you to just begin to turn your palms toward the floor and let that weight go. You just cast that care on Him. Tell him what you need. Tell him what's on your heart. Ask him to step in. Ask him to show you what he wants to do. Ask him to supply exactly what's needed. Would you ask him to just let his peace wash over you? To let his joy and gladness begin to replace what has been fear, anxiety, worry. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for how much you love us. That you're so concerned about even the little details in our lives. And that you, you really are burdened for the things that burden us. I thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light and that today you're not stressed out over all of the things that we cast on you. And today we choose to do that. We trust that you care about us, that you want what's best for us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have hearts and minds that stay centered on you, that you would help us to start the day centered on you and end the day centered on you and to have our thoughts return to you through the day. And God, I pray that you'd be really specific by the work of your spirit, that you would show us some things that we're just allowing to feed our minds with just trash and that things that are pulling us down, that we could just get rid of that stuff. We don't need the distraction. We confess it for what it is. It's junk. And we want to, to replace that with things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and worthy of praise, things that are excellent, pleasing to you. Thank you, Jesus, for your great love. We rest in that today. Today, would you let your joy fill the hearts of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.